welcome to the Xterra Podcast. I'm Tom Patton. The Xterra mission is to explore and discuss the business of space and its effect on the national and global economy as well as life on Earth. How does what happens in space affect your life every day? That's what we're exploring on the Xterra website as well as on this podcast. And this week, we continue our conversation with Dr. Namrata Goswami, a strategic analyst and consultant on great power politics, space policy, alternate futures, and frameworks of conflict negotiation and resolution. Dr. Goswami grew up in Northeast India. She completed her PhD in international relations in 2005. In 2006, she launched her professional career in academic research, studying great power politics, international relations, and ethnic conflicts. She served as a senior fellow at the United States Institute of Peace and as a fellow of the Institute for Defense Studies and Analysis. She continues her research on great power politics in the realm of grand strategy, as well as ethnic conflicts. And Dr. Goswami, thank you once again for joining us on the podcast. Thank you, Tom. It's a pleasure to be here again. This week, we want to focus specifically on China. And let's start out by talking about the current status of China's space program. Absolutely. So uh, China, as we speak, is focusing on three important capability development in terms of their space program. One is to establish a truly independent Beidou-supported navigation system. Second is to develop a capacity to not just enter Martian orbit, but also to land uh, and send out a rover to the Martian surface. Uh, to prospect for and look for the kind of resources that might be there in Mars. And the final capacity that they're actually looking at is to develop heavy launch capability to include reusable capability to kickstart or even enhance their program of looking at space from a space resource, space economy perspective, which includes resources on the moon and asteroids. So that, those are the three capacity building that China is involved in as we speak. How big a competitor is China to the United States for the eventual ex- exploitation of space resources? I think it's a pretty serious competitor. So if you look at the programs that China is investing in, uh, they have already started investing in a space-based solar power program. Uh, last year, they established the, first, the world's first state-funded space-based solar power plant that's looking at two critical technologies. One is microwave beaming of power, which uh, we know is critical if you want to have uh, a space-based solar power satellite to be successful. And second is in-situ resource manufacturing. And so, as you see, they have started talking about this in the last 20 years. And so the incremental development of capacity is pretty serious. The second point is that if you think of their articulation of their long-term space goals, they are very much long-term in terms of 20 years from now, which is 2049. So in that context, what China's space goals are is not just limited to uh, low Earth orbit capability, support systems for Earth, uh, support system for the military, but they are reconceptualizing space and their space goals from a space economy perspective. And what is even more insightful is that they connect their space economy perspective to the national rejuvenation of the Chinese nation. And that is where I think the competition is pretty stark. So from the President Xi Jinping, who is the premier of China's perspective, 
China's investment in space, artificial intelligence, robotics, 3D printing is something that will enable China to become the lead nation in space by 2049, which is the 100th year anniversary of the People's Republic of China. So if you can see that their strategic conceptualization wants them to become the lead nation, which means that they are competing with the lead nation today, which is the United States. And we know that when China sets its sights on something like that, it has a tendency to focus like a laser on achieving those goals. That's correct. And I think it's also because their political system is very different from the U.S. democratic political system. So as we know, the U.S. has presidential administrations that change every four years. Uh, you have a Senate that changes every six years, and you have Congress that has to also change every two years, I think. So, so it is critical that that democratic system, while it's absolutely wonderful for the electorate and the population, because it means you have representation uh, of your particular political perspective in the houses that matter. In China, that is not the case. So in China, the Communist Party of China, it's a one party system. It does not have any change of government unless it itself decides to do so, which is 10 years time. And so any commitment to a long-term development goal to include space is long-term and their ability to focus human power, their ability to focus resources, their ability to focus incremental capacity building is truly long-term. And you can see this in China's development of its economy, development of its military, development of its space capacity. And so that is why they're able to focus laser-like, if I may, uh, un, un, unlike the United States or countries like India and Japan that face democratic elections. When you look at, at China as far as its technology is concerned, where is it now in terms of, in relation, I mean, compare this to where we would have been in like 1970-something, 1980-something. Where is China now in relation to where its development compared to the United States? So I think where China is today is that it is uh, able to launch a heavy lift capability to low Earth orbit. Uh, it is able to send a robotic capability to the lunar surface. Uh, it's still not able to send humans to the moon, but it plans to do that by 2036. Uh, it is ahead of where the US was in the 1980s and 70s because of the fact that if we talk about space economy and space development, it's not just humans being there. It's about developing your artificial intelligence capability, your 3D printing capability, your uh, in-situ resource manufacturing capability, uh, your capability to have a space-based solar power satellite, your capability to uh, have additive manufacturing. Uh, China is actually a lead actor in those areas, unlike, say, the Soviet Union was in, in comparison to the U.S. in the 1980s and the 70s. And uh, the Soviet uh, lunar program actually collapsed with the death of their main scientists. And so un unlike that, China's scientists are educated abroad, their engineers are educated abroad, and they go back, uh, including education in the United States, Ivy League universities uh, to a large extent. And so the China's uh, space capacity and the attendant capacities needed is actually pretty competitive with the United States as we speak today. And yet it would seem that people in the United States, at least the general public, I don't know if this is true in uh, in higher government circles, but it, it would seem that people are somewhat dismissive of China's 
capabilities in space. And I'm wondering if that is because we've always had that comparison to the former Soviet Union that tried to do a lot of things for, and what comes to mind is the space shuttle that they tried to develop that looked a whole lot like our space shuttle uh, that never got off the ground. Is that something that is in an American's mind that, oh, well, it's China and they say they do a lot of things, but we don't really believe that comparing it to what the Soviet Union did back in the 80s? I think that is a correct assessment. So if you look at the uh, framework through which China is perceived in the US strategic and also population circle is that it's a replica of the Soviet Union. It's a communist uh, supported regime. Uh, It does not have much innovation. People do not have uh, rights. They have no right to have political representation. So it's a very closed, very dysfunctional system. And it's not capable of independent innovation. And I think this is also vindicated by some of the activities that China had involved in, including uh, intellectual property issues and uh, the stealing of technology, which was a big concern in terms of the United States. I think the fundamental mistake here is that China, after it joined the World Trade Organization in 2001, has become a global power. It is not the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union was not integrated to the global economy. China has not just become a manufacturing hub, but also become an innovation hub. Cities like Shenzhen are actually one of the leading cities in terms of the development of technology comparable to Silicon Valley. Uh, I think what the other fundamental issue is that not many American uh, citizens actually visit China beyond just Shanghai and Beijing. You need to go beyond those cities to see all the other cities that exist in China and see the amount of innovation and activity that is happening there. And I think the final point I'll make is that unlike the Soviet Union, the Chinese Communist Party decided to liberalize their economy in 1978 under Deng Xiaoping. So he opened up the economy, he tried, he attracted international investments, developed economic relationship besides the US with countries in Europe, Germany being one of the major cases. Germany is an amazing intellectual hub and technological hub and China, Germany has good relation, developed relationship with other countries in Europe, developed relationship with countries in Africa, including Nigeria, which is uh, slotted to become the one of the top economies by 2050. And so I think that's where China is a very different model from the Soviet Union. It's a, they call it the, it's a communism with Chinese characteristics. Are we seeing the kinds of space entrepreneurs in China that are popping up all over the United States? I think this is a a new phenomenon in China. So uh, the United States started seeing, uh, of course, historically, the United States has always seen private enterprise in space. Uh, mostly funded by NASA or in collaboration with NASA. But in the last 10 years, since the establishment of SpaceX and Blue Origin and their ability, as I said, to show proof of concept of in terms of reusability, there has been a sprouting of private entrepreneurship. In China, the private entrepreneurship sector started sprouting in 2016. And so when President Xi came to power, he actually made the establishment of a private space entrepreneurship sector a priority. China released a document called Document 60, where it highlighted the importance of the private space sector to be developed. And in the last four years, which is actually not a long period, you have had companies like iSpace of China. You had one space that has already launched orbitally. 
you had Link Space that has launched a reusable rocket 300 meters and landed it back and, they, and is planning to launch a reusable rocket in the next two years. Uh, iSpace is planning to launch next year, the Hyperbola 2. Uh, you have the CEOs of this private space sector consult globally, talking about the return of investment in the space launch sector, including the development of small satellites. So it's actually starting to make an impact in the global arena as well. So the market is reusable launch, low-cost low launch, satellite launches, development of satellites, uh, development of a space economy, and they are seriously investing in that capability. In the United States, the entrepreneurship aspect of space seems to be uh, the classic entrepreneurship, which is find a niche and fill it. Um, and I'm talking about things like, um, and we'll go back to Elon Musk and the, the satellite internet, several companies trying to develop satellite-based internet. Uh, there, and it, it just seems like there are so many different things that are being developed to take advantage of space. Is China's entrepreneurship focused the same way, or are they 100% focused on that goal of getting to uh, a consistent presence on the moon in the next 30 years? So the pri China's private space sector is guided by a document called Civil Military Fusion Strategy. So unlike the US private space sector that has independent decision-making uh, with collaboration with uh, the public sector, it is not guided by a national security document, for instance, that calls them to just develop capability for national defense. You add to national defense, but that's a choice you make, and you can also develop capability on your own, like Elon Musk trying to develop a Martian capability. So unlike that, China's new space sector is very much determined by developing space capacity for the national rejuvenation of the Chinese nation. It's a very nationalistic project. And I think the capacities that they are looking at is launch. They're very serious about bringing down the cost of launch, and rightly so, because I think if you want to become a truly space-faring civilization, being able to launch to the moon and beyond, you need to bring down the cost of launch. And reusability is one way, but if you can offer launch which is not reusable, even much more cheaper, which India actually is pretty good at in developing very low-cost uh, launch capability, you are actually competitive in the global market because your capital, your labor, your uh, manufacturing is so much cheaper compared to the United States. So you are already competing with the US in that particular sector. And I think the new space companies are looking at those first launch capability. They're looking at investing in AI. They're looking at investing in quantum. They're looking at investing in space solar power capability. And so it's interesting that the fusion is about national defense, but they're looking at very key space uh, capabilities that build your competitive edge in the long term. China has, as we all know, been shut out of the International Space Station program. How has that motivated them in their development of their own ambitions? So when I spoke to some of China's strategic uh, thinkers, when I visited China, uh, especially in Shanghai and Beijing, what they told me and asked them this question that you asked me, that uh, China was banned from the International Space Station, how do you think that affected China's reputation and development of technology. So their argument was that it actually, of course, they said it was not good that they could not collaborate, but they said what happened was that because of that, there was a bargaining of the China, the Chinese Communist Party investing in developing indigenous space capacity. 
And you can see that that had a deep impact in terms of their ability to launch independently. And next year, China is going to launch China's version of a permanent space station, the Tiangong. And so uh, they already had two temporary space stations, Tiangong 1 and Tiangong 2, which uh, they in which actually Chinese taikonauts, astronauts, live for a month or so. Now they're going to have a permanent space station. So you can clearly see that this is a consequence of the fact that they were banned or shut out from the International Space Station. When you look at that particular aspect of things, um, did that, because, because I'm, a lot of what caused the space station partners to shut China out was the, the, tre- tech, uh, the transfer of technology. How has that driven China to independently develop some of the technology they've needed to do these things, or have they developed it independently? Have they come by it by some other means? So uh, it has motivated them to develop independent capacity. And one way they have been able to do it, as I mentioned, is to educate their student base, not just in China, but abroad. The other thing is that China now produces the highest number of STEM students. So they have invested a lot in that particular capacity. They have increased salaries for students going for uh, jobs in AI space, which was not the case many, many years ago. So it's interesting that that particular uh, inability to collaborate has actually built the innovation base. Now, there are concerns still that, uh, and I would be remiss if I do not mention this, that there is the capability of China to have intellectual property theft. The courts in China that actually uh, adjudicate such disputes are not independent, unlike the US, India, or Japan. And so the concerns still exist. Uh, And I think the other thing that China has done very, very critically and strategically is that it's not just taken over the end technology, but it's also trying to develop the supply chain technology which again is a capability building because you would then need Chinese manufacturing assets to build the whole system. So they are focusing on looking at the entire supply chain of how a particular technological capability is developed. Now, it is, it is critical that when we talk about Taiwan, Taiwan is one of the biggest manufacturers of super uh, semiconductors. And so they are the biggest supplier of chips to Huawei, for instance, which is a Chinese 5G company. Now, many people think that China is claiming Taiwan or escalating the conflict when China, when Taiwan started getting more independent ideas was because of the fact that it's a historical province without realizing that Taiwan is also one of the biggest strategic suppliers of such technology to China. So it's a very interesting strategic world that we are in today. Do you feel like the Chinese Communist Party is a threat to space commerce on the parts of other nations? I think uh, if we look at the Communist Party of China and its behavior within China and in other disputed areas. So within China, as you know, the Hong Kong protests against extradition to the mainland based on promises made by China to the United Kingdom when Hong Kong was was given over to China was that you will not have such extradition facility. But you see that China went ahead and actually Put, push forward that law and then had a national security law that arrested almost all the pro-democracy leaders uh, as we speak. Uh, its behavior in Tibet, where it basically took over this whole province, which was historically autonomous, and then took over land which actually originally belonged to Tibetans. And Tibetans actually self-immolated themselves in protest before the 2008 Olympics. And so these are, you know, uh, these are things that we cannot really forget or should not forget. 
The other important point is that if you look at China's behavior, especially the Communist Party of China's behavior in the South China Sea disputed islands, in Antarctica, uh, in the East China Sea islands, you could see that wherever there were resources, uh, when an area was disputed with other countries, China claimed first presence rights and said that they were the original and the only inheritors of this land. So the concern I have is if that is indeed China's strategic culture and which the Communist Party of China favors, think of a situation where a China, uh, a Communist Party-led space institution has its facilities on the South Pole of the Moon and they are there first. Mm -hmm. Will they adhere to international treaties and regulations, or will they say that if we are somewhere first, and so we have the first entitlement rights to create a normative regime. And China's record of signing on to treaties to include the draft code of conduct with the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, the China-Bhutan bilateral agreement, the China-India bilateral agreement tells you that China commits to something on paper, for instance, committing to not building any physical structure on the South China Sea Islands, but actually doing the exact, exact, exact opposite uh, about 10 years after it signed that particular agreement. So those are concerns that should be critically discussed if China becomes the lead actor in space economy. Is China a signatory to the, um, to the agreement that basically says no one can own the moon? The moon, uh, the moon treaty. The moon treaty, yes. No. And so they could potentially feel like, as you said, if they get there first, then we claim this for China and everybody else stay off, and we have rights to everything that's here. Yes, uh, but you see, the moon treaty, the U.S. is not a uh, party to. So the U.S. has neither signed or ratified the moon treaty. The Trump administration issued an executive order on April 6th that said that the U.S. will not even treat the Moon Treaty as a customary international law. And I think the fundamental reason for that was that the Moon Treaty did not recognize the right of private sector to actually be able to go to the moon. And the L5 Society, as you know, very highly lobbied against that particular position under the Carter administration. And then Reagan said that he's not going to ratify it. So in that context, uh, given the fact that we do not have a regulatory mechanism globally where the major spacefaring nations have actually agreed to on a common regulatory framework, it is very possible that if China gets to the moon first, especially a particular area in the moon, it might actually say that because we are here first, we should have the most say in terms of the normative framework that is established. Uh, now, if you're looking for empirical evidence as to why I'm saying this, look at their behavior with the Belt and Road Initiative. So they established the Belt and Road Initiative where they offered about $100 billion from the Asian Infrastructure Development Bank to countries that became members. And so once the countries became member, they got funding for their infrastructure, for development of other societal capability. Now, if you have a dispute with a Chinese company that is funded through the Belt and Road Initiative. You have to go to the China Commercial International Court that actually uses Chinese dispute resolution mechanisms. And we all know that China does not have an independent judiciary. So the concern is that it is possible that a similar, and, and, and space information corridor is part of the Belt and Road Initiative, including development of the moon and, and in, in cooperation with other countries who are members. So we do know that if, if a dispute arises, it is quite possible that China will have its own dispute resolution mechanisms without an independent judiciary in place.
There's a group called the Quad, which includes the U.S., India, Japan, and Australia that has been strengthening ties in response to the Chinese Communist Party's uh, belligerence, for lack of a better term. What must they do to keep China in check and promote and protect space commerce? So the Quadrilateral Alliance is, a, is an alliance between the United States, Australia, India. It's a, it's a partnership, sorry, between the United States, India, Australia, and Japan. The Quad came out of a concern, especially from Japan, that China is escalating its presence in the Pacific, including the South China Sea, that actually has the highest amount of traffic, including trade, between countries from Asia, US, Europe, Africa. So the Quadrilateral Alliance is about ensuring that the sea lines of communication remain free. And I think the concern is actually arising because India recently uh, invited Australia for a military exercise in the, which is called the Malabar exercise. Mm -hmm. So I think what the, a similar quadrilateral kind of partnership or alliance could do in space is that democratic countries that are spacefaring nations include US, India, Japan, and Australia now has a recent space uh, agency. Uh, which they established a few years back. They can have a similar kind of vision and partnership and alliance vis-a-vis -vis space where all the four countries commit to ensuring that they will maintain freedom of access in the space lines of communication or celestial lines of communication and have cooperation, interoperability, joint or quadrilateral alliance statements coming out on that particular forum. Do you foresee um, other countries joining into that kind of an alliance to uh, make it almost uh, the world against China as far as it comes to space commerce? I don't think I see that happening because of the fact that China has enormous influence in the world. Uh, for example, I'll tell you that uh, if you look at the Belt and Road Initiative, you see that countries like uh, Luxembourg, Countries like uh, New Zealand, countries like Austria, countries like Italy have joined in. So you are not going to have a countervailing alliance as we saw during the Cold War that's going to counter China's activities in space because China's ability to influence the United Nations, the United Nations uh, mechanisms in terms of space, uh, regional organizations, economic investments that actually have quid pro quos is very, very deep. And so it's not the Soviet Union, which was not integrated to the global economy. Uh, in my conversations with some countries in Europe where I asked them, are they uncomfortable with Chinese investments? Some of the uh, members or people told me that, well, it's because China is investing in infrastructure that we badly need, which the United States is not doing. So why should we not take the funds, which is a loan, and develop our capacity? Countries in Africa, for instance, uh, tell you that it is China that is actually talking about establishing space capacity, uh, remote sensing, satellite launches for Africa, uh, and generosity that they are offering it sometimes for free or sometimes with a capability to pay back later. It's not America, it's not the US. So you can see that China is actually developing a coalition of influence mechanisms that limits the capability of a similar Cold War alliance we saw uh, in, since the 1940s. How important is China's position as a producer of technology and the components of technology in cementing their position as a spacefaring nation and as someone that as a country that others would would not like to antagonize? I'll give you an example to answer that question. So as we as we as I said, China launched the 55th satellite for its Beidou navigation system this year. 
So the Beidou navigation system came out of a fear that in case you have a military conflict, say in Taiwan, the United States GPS can be cut off, which happened in 1996 when China launched a missile towards Taiwan and they lost track of their missile. So it was a very military conceived, People's Liberation Army conceived program. But today, very similar to the development of the US GPS, which started with ARPA and the US military, and now we all benefit from it. Right. Uh, China's Beidou navigation system has become more civilian today. And so it is critical that once you have countries that shift to the Beidou navigation system, including China's mandate that if you want to sell your cars or your phones in China, you have to shift to Baidu. Otherwise, you will not get a license or you'll not be able to buy that car. I think that itself is a limiting factor for global companies to behave carefully. The second thing is that once you have countries shift to Baidu for their critical infrastructure, including uh, weather forecasting, national disaster, uh, navigation system, then there is the possibility that if China become, if other countries become very critical, say, on China's behavior in Xinjiang, uh, where the Uyghur minority communities are targeted. If China's behavior in Taiwan is criticized, China can threaten to cut off critical infrastructure. Uh, and it has done that in terms of other countries and their economic development. Dr. Goswami, we talked a little bit about China being focused like a laser on their ambitions in space. In your opinion, do they have a good chance of landing humans on the moon in the time frame that they have established? And what will that mean for the, the entire dynamic of human space exploration? There is a very good chance that they will meet their goals because for the Communist Party of China, especially the China National Space Administration, which is their key policymaking body, to come up with such a goal uh, right after the Chang'e 4 landing on the far side in January of last year means that they are serious and they want to make sure that they actually meet that goal. Because I think we have to realize that the Communist Party of China, despite being a one-party system, cares about its legitimacy and credibility within the domestic audience that it is signaling to, and also the neighborhood audience. So if you look at their, their goal for sending humans to low Earth orbit, uh, it started in 1999, the first goal. Right. And then they talked about, uh, I think 1990, then they talked about sending humans by the early part of 2000. And they actually succeeded in doing it uh, within that time period of sending humans to low Earth orbit. And then they talked about sending their taikonauts or astronauts to the Tiangong 1 and 2, and then an ability to maintain astronauts for a month within a particular time span. And they actually met their goals right on time of the years that they had announced. So given the fact that they've announced, especially uh, Lieutenant General Zhang Yiling, who was the deputy head of China's human spaceflight program, he pointed out that by 2036, China will land humans on the moon. I see that being followed through because of the fact that they can commit long-term. Now, what happens if China lands on the moon? I think that will create a uh, a kind of a revolutionary or a, a very interesting discourse globally. Because now you do not have just the United States that has the only capability or was did have the only capability to land humans on the moon. You have another country, China. So you have a global audience looking at which country to follow and which country offers the more low cost, more efficient, cheaper ability to get there. So there'll be much more partnerships with China in that regard, or U.S., if it, it's able to offer a more cheaper capability. Another space race in the offing.
perhaps. Space has always been based on a race, including, <laughs> the, including the development of Sputnik. Sputnik led us all to develop a moon capability. So sometimes I think competition is good because it develops innovation and human society. Uh, and I think that kind of a race can actually have positive benefits as well, because you can then have the development of, say, internet that came out of the space program. So. Dr. Namrata Goswami, thank you so much. It's been a fascinating couple of weeks. I really appreciate your time on the Xterra podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you, Tom. It's my pleasure to be on your podcast. That is going to do it for this edition of the Xterra podcast. Find us on the web at xterrajsc.com and be sure to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at xterrajsc. Until next time, I'm Tom Patton. Thanks for listening.